America's economy is war-based, and those who plan it depend upon Christians for their support of those wars. Christian Zionists, by whatever name, are the primary public enablers of our serial wars, the sanctions against other states, the occasional occupation of Islamic states, and other acts of war against other countries. He wants to bring millions of Christians together for Israel. But what's his message? It is time for America to consider a military preemptive strike against Iran to prevent a nuclear holocaust in Israel and a nuclear attack in America. Why do Christians support war when Jesus demanded peace? Because they have been conditioned to think Islam is anathema to them, much as many of us were trained to consider communists to be our ideological enemy a generation ago. Christian Zionist celebrity media leaders allow themselves to be used as propagandists against Islamic governments, including Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan, Somalia, Bosnia, Iran, Sudan, and the list goes on. Our purpose is to explain why and how this has been done and what can be done to change it, because it can be changed. The war on Islam is World War III. I trust you recognize that wars are official economic policy of our government, which is why we have so many. Wars give governments many advantages in controlling people, but only Christian Zionists, and they have been known by many other names, believe that war is an integral and necessary part of their religion. This is unchristlike in air, one that has become the primary cause of our conflicts, conflicts which are perpetual because of it. To emphasize, at risk of repeating myself, Christian Zionists, by whatever name, are the only remaining sizable faction that support wars in places like Iraq. Therefore, it is largely their responsibility for the economic and social disaster that we now see among us, including the energy and the food shortages. As such, Christian Zionists are the darling of presidential candidates and are the seeds of their own destruction, sad to say. We find them among our friends, families, and associates. Because we find so many Christian Zionists among our friends, we cannot just turn our back on them, despise and ridicule them, because they are among our best allies, our bosses, even our wives and children. We need to learn to deal with Christian Zionists, and in so doing we find our best hope, for they can be changed. If we can save them, perhaps we can save our country. If we can save our country, perhaps then the world can be saved. Fortunately, this looks much easier once we understand that Christian Zionism is a promoted religion that makes little sense on its own. It is not believed because it is logical. Endless wars always have and always will result in the destruction of both the morality and the currency of the aggressor nation. This has happened throughout history, including Great Britain. High-priced gasoline and unaffordable fuels can be accurately laid at the feet of all those who support serial war. Only Christian Zionists believe that war is necessary to their faith, and they can be easily swayed to support war if they believe, and so long as they believe, that Muslims are on the receiving end of our bombs and bullets. And then this goes with that uh, as a parallel, and so long as the state of Israel is perceived to be the beneficiary from these wars. So to repeat, Christian Zionists will support just about any war that they feel is to the benefit 
of the state of Israel, and most of those wars end up having Muslims on the receiving end. Now, I'm no way, in no way excusing Jewish war-making Zionists or cowardly congressmen for their role in all this, but for every Jewish Zionist in America, there are 10 or 20 Christian Zionists doing the work of the former. Christian Zionists have turned on Jesus' words, Blessed are the peacemakers, and love your brother. Love even your enemy as you love yourself. This is Christianity. Anyone who claims they follow Christ and fails to stand for justice and protection of the innocent will have some tall explaining to do if we believe what is written in the Bible. Political change can only come from understanding the roots of Christian Zionism. Americans of all religions need to understand what Christian Zionists believe and why. Most Christian Zionists don't know they are. The vast majority of members of this sect and the churches that call themselves by this name put Israel first before Jesus and do not consider themselves at all Christian Zionists, and they would even deny it. They usually describe themselves as evangelicals or dispensationalists or premillennialists or just Christians. Very few laymen are comfortable with the radical elements of Christian Zionism when they stop to think about it. Their church is a comfortable social outlet, especially for their families. They really do not believe in the Christian Zionist jargon that's spoken there. At the apex of Christian Zionist sect, which is really only 100 years old, are media personalities such as currently John Hagee, Rod Parsley, Pat Robertson, and the late Jerry Falwell, and many others. Each has openly expressed the view that war upon Islamic states is necessary and welcome, including wars against Iran. The $64 question is, how do you tell a Christian Zionist? How do you detect one? We have a 10-word litmus test that determines whether any individual is a Christian Zionist, and it's non-invasive and usually welcome. So you can ask any churchgoers and not hurt his feelings. Here it is. Do you believe that the state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy? If Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, which it is not, then where does Jesus fit in? Jesus or Israel, one or the other, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. But there is no room for both. Orthodox or traditional Christians have always believed that Jesus, not Israel, is the correct answer. Only Christian Zionism, by definition, assumes that the political Israel is God's plan for the future. No other branch of Christianity believes that political Israel is in God's plan for the future. All others believe that it's somewhere in the past. This, while ignoring its intolerance, the, I'm speaking of Israel's intolerance, its racism, its constant wars. Israel is to them, the Christian Zionists, the chosen people of God still today. Today, about one-third of the 210 million American adults who identify themselves in the polls and census as Christians are influenced by Christian Zionism. That's about 70 million people, most of whom vote, making Christian Zionism the most powerful and coveted voting bloc in the world, as can be clearly seen during any election year. The most obvious example is John McCain's reckless pursuit of Christian right and its support that has led him to gross embarrassments at the pulpits next to maniacal Zionists, including John Hagee and Rod Parsley, both of whom call for nuclear destruction of Iran. In fact, Rod Parsley has said that America was created for the purpose of destroying Islam. It is rewarding to us and constructive to God's plan to read that the giant closet Zionist Southern Baptist Convention recently announced with great distress that its membership is falling 
quote, to the lowest level in 20 years. Perhaps it will return to the Orthodox Christianity. We hope so. The teachings of Jesus Christ inescapably demand peace and love of one's neighbor. This has been America's one badge of righteousness. In the mid-19th century, America's churches led the cry for peace in a world where wars were all too common in Europe. It was later, at the turn of the 20th century, when Christian Zionism first took root. The French author, Alexis de Tocqueville, a non-religious observer, wrote of America's churches while he traveled here in the first third of the 19th century. He sang the praises of America's invulnerable strength and spirit, which he attributed to our citizens' sense of morality, and even to the abundant church attendance he observed in America, which, of course, he would not find in his native France. De Tocqueville wrote, quote, America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great, end quote. He could not know that the churches he saw were under a moral attack aimed at the very sense of justice that he observed within them. Wars seed immorality, a lesson every church should recognize. The most awful assault on Christian values came with the war between the states in 1861 to 1865, which scarred the sense of justice and morality and diminished and divided the church. It taught moral Christian men about mass killing. A more direct attack on Christianity came from Oxford University Press in England, which in 1908 published a false and intentionally misleading reference Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. It was aimed at creating a new religion with the future state of Israel written into it as a semi-god. The term dispensationalist, which we hear in modern churches, was taken from the Schofield Reference Bible. Oxford not only published the book, but it promoted it into key American seminaries and American Bible school, where opinion of future generations of pastors could be molded to cloud the peacemaking traditions of Christianity and create the state of Israel as a God image in those churches. Most pastors and teachers were unaware of any danger, and I might say as an aside, why would they be aware of a danger, since there was no state of Israel at the time, and most of them did not even know that one was being planned. But... They ignored Christian Zionism and foolish, outlandish, and embarrassing to them. Few guessed that the new book could be used by secular powers to bend Christianity so that these powers could control Americans. American Christianity became increasingly Zionized after 1948 when the State of Israel appeared as a result of a United Nations edict. Oxford University Press, which was strongly Zionist-influenced, also provided a huge financial and promotional boost when it opened a publishing branch in New York City for the purpose of publishing the Christian Zionist Manual in 1908 called the Schofield Reference Bible. This book was to be a foundational document upon which Christian Zionism, by a whole host of other names, including evangelicalism, the one that this group picked for itself, would begin its methodical growth by spiritual deception. And we will go into that deception in a short while. The world Zionist movement was in high gear toward occupying Arab Palestine by 1917, after the Balfour Declaration gave them a claim, but of course not a title to any land, occupied by the Palestinians. Again, war was the issue. The founders of the world Zionism, especially one Cham Wiseman, had much to do with drawing the United States into World War I. It seemed that the land of the Philistines 
was to be a payoff to world Zionism for causing its leaders to coax the USA into the World War I on the side of Great Britain, which was losing the war. It appeared a handful of dominant American Zionists, including one Justice Brandeis, were able to influence President Woodrow Wilson to join in the war in Europe. America lost 500,000 men who were entirely innocent of any involvement in European politics. And out of all of this, the World Zionist Movement gained a piece of land called Palestine. Not all Orthodox Christians were asleep. One of the few who saw the war-making and heretical dangers of the new sets and actually called it Zionism was a well-known patent attorney named Philip Moreau, who turned scholar and who wrote brilliant critiques of the new cult in his 1927 book entitled Gospel of the Kingdom. In it, Philip Moreau wrote, Through an incident of recent occurrence, I was made aware of the extent, far greater than I had imagined, to which the modern system of dispensationalism has found acceptance among Orthodox Christians, and also the extent, correspondingly great, to which the recently published Schofield Bible, which is the main vehicle of the new system of doctrine referred to, has usurped the place of authority that belong to God's Bible alone, end quote, and brilliantly said. Merle went on, let it be understood at the outset that my controversy is solely with the doctrine itself, not with at all with those who hold and teach it or any of them. Indeed, I was myself of their number for so long a time that I cannot feel but a tender consideration and profound sympathy likewise for all such. Philip Moreau tells us that he had been caught up in himself in evangelicalism or Christian Zionism of his day, and he learned about it from the inside. This has been the case with most of those of us who have come to understand Christian Zionism, including this very author. Philip Moreau has been an encouragement to your speaker and to all those who support We Hold These Truths. He was a dedicated scholar with an engineer's logic and a lawyer's tenacity that allowed him to foresee error in 1927 that others never detected and which it took me 60 years to understand. Your speaker must admit and echo Dr. Moreau's confession, for I too was of their number, and like him, I also am profoundly sympathetic for those who are caught up in dispensationalism. As his words suggest, we are not fighting Christian Zionists. We are trying to reclaim them back to basic and fundamental or orthodox Christianity. Dr. F. Furman Curley is another unsung Christian scholar who saw the path to war in the era of dispensationalism. He was head of graduate studies at Abilene Christian University in 1983 when he wrote of Christian Zionism and its evil fruits of perpetual war in the Middle East. His short book, The Middle East Crisis in Biblical Perspective, takes sharp issue with those he calls Israel first millennialists. He names radical Zionist prophets of war, Hal Lindsey, and the late Jerry Falwell, who he said would help nudge the U.S. into endless war with Islamic State. Dr. Curley explained why. When the concept of Armageddon as in Revelation 16, 16 is raised, those who believe in a literal war at Armageddon often feel that Christians should work to start this war. 
and should vigorously participate in it. Those in particular who view this present situation as Armageddon believe that Christians should support Israel with the vigor and they urge our government to take an active part in the conflict in the Middle East. Curley saw Christian Zionist support for Israel's brutal occupation of Palestine as a precursor to more wars in the Middle East, and he concluded, One needs to be absolutely certain that the doctrine he follows is God's and not of men. Before he advocates a doctrine that would put the blood of other men on our hands, Dr. Curley explains the neo-Christian love affair with war as a religious fixation, correctly stating, quote, Christians must pray for peace in the Middle East. Premillennialists must pray and work for World War III so Armageddon will come. They cannot pray for peace in the Middle East. If a follower of Christian Zionism would only examine the simple teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, we will find that there is not a single passage or phrase that would give a follower of Christ cause to take the life of another man or another man's child. Certainly, we must not kill a man's wife in a faraway country. No such biblical permission exists. We have summarized Christian Zionism's unnatural and unbiblical love affair with the agnostic Zionist state of Israel. Now we will examine how the followers of Christ have become deterred to accept false anti-Jesus doctrine of Christian Zionism that has led to the death of millions, many of them our own. And we will first take a quick look at the renegade state of Israel in its dealing with its Arab neighbors in the Gaza Strip, which is so much in our news today. Now, when we talk about the Middle East, we cannot help but think about Palestine. And I have a picture that I took myself in Gaza, the Gaza Strip, as some call it. But this was in Gaza City. And this is a photograph of the Baptist Church of Gaza City. It stands on Omer Mokhtar Boulevard right next to a mosque. And in fact, this Baptist church was built in an old mosque. You can see the dome roof of the mosque up over the top of the curved sign over the gate. The sign says Baptist church in English on one side and on the other side going backwards toward the middle. It says in Arabic Baptist church. And this Baptist church has existed side by side next to the mosque, attended by many people who used to be Muslims, and some who are from America, but who have lived in total peace without a locked door or a locked gate for six years during the worst crisis of the Middle East. If you went to this church and asked the people if they were at peace with their Muslim neighbors, they would tell you absolutely, in fact, that we are engaged in the same conflict that they are for our own independence. We want independence for Palestine. And religion is not an issue here. It is a question of truth and a question of righteousness, and a question of peace. One of the members of this church told me that his two sons, and by the way, he, of course, is a Baptist, he told me that his two sons' school had been destroyed the previous week by two missiles that were fired from an American airplane, an F-16, two 500-pound missiles that penetrated the roof of the school at night when the children were not there and completely destroyed their school and that his children were now afraid to go to school, and furthermore, he didn't know where he was going to send them. That school was attended by both Christian and Muslim families who sent their children there, and both of them found themselves out of a school. So obviously, they had a way of getting along together. What they could not stand was being bombed by American bombs and missiles at night. You're looking at a funeral parade. I took this picture from right in front of the Baptist church. I went out onto the street to watch the parade, and I photographed these men going by. 
The night before, there had been a missile raid. I viewed it from my rooftop, and I have a recording of it and pictures of the flashes and bangs on my camcorder taken from my rooftop at night in Hi. Gaza City. Uh, my name is Shireen. I'm from Gaza. The Gaza Strip, a space only 22 miles long and 5 miles wide. 26 and you're unmarried. Thank you for reminding me of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 26, I'm not married. Be gentle to the lady. Mm -hmm. Be gentle to the lady. He is. <laughs> I'm Palestinian from Gaza, which is um, considered as a big chill. And if you hear that in the distance, that's a bomb. But that's about the fourth explosion. All over the city, bark dogs are barking. Death is around you, always around you. Last night, large numbers of people killed. Now I hear the ambulances running. Can you imagine this feeling that I feel always when we are we are bombed? Apache helicopters hoovering up there. Here comes a missile coming down. It's happening just at bedtime here, 9 o'clock at night. Just when the kids go to bed. This feeling, exactly this feeling, that you are in your room, in your bed, you're praying. بسام ارجع لورا يا بسام Here we are again, the choppers very close this time. He's up there terrorizing people, shooting from right behind us. across the uh, town. This one fired right over our heads. It's 3 a.m. and the killing is going on. Imagine, the United States paying for all this. You don't have him, you don't have her, you have a news saying that 
go to the hospital because he's there. He's dead. He's in the fridge. Four men, women, and children were killed, and 30 were wounded. I don't know how many of the 30 eventually died of their wounds, because the wounds were, of course, oftentimes extremely serious. These people were burying their dead the next day, and I walked in the parade. And in that parade, I'm sure there were Christians walking with the Muslims. And I walked along behind it, and I feel ashamed for what is happening in America, that we would tolerate this going on in our country. The building of missiles and weapons that kill people in a faraway place, people that we don't even know, where you can stand in front of a Baptist church and photograph a funeral of Muslims walking in a parade the next day. And yet, they do not hate us. I couldn't help but wonder as I watched, why don't they hate us? Why would they accept the Baptist church there when those missiles come from America? This is an article on our website. It's called Attacking Islam. This author wrote this article in 1994, and it was published in a national magazine. The national magazine may have wished they wouldn't have published it because they received a lot of criticism for it. But what my statement said was that we are in a serial war in which we are going into battle time and time again on events that we call wars, and invariably what we are attacking is Muslim countries like Iraq and, of course, Somalia before that, and then Iraq before that, and others like Bosnia through sanctions. My article asked the question in 1994, what is it that is causing a world war, as Mr. Furman Curry called it, he called it a world war, I called it a war on Islam, and what is it that's causing Americans to do this? Why are Americans participating in the bombing of countries around the world, and why is it that they accept this? That is the question that we will begin to answer as we go forward with this presentation. It is important to know the history of Cyrus I. Schofield, the man who was the rocket launcher for Christian Zionism in the United States 100 years ago. He was a former Civil War veteran, although a youth at the time, a frontier self-proclaimed a self-trained lawyer and politician, a prairie con man, he was convicted and served six months in the St. Louis County Jail for forging other people's signatures for the sale of property and keeping the proceeds. And that included the property owned by his mother-in-law. Later, his wife divorced him after many years of neglect and desertion of her and their two children. And the courts upheld her claims of desertion. He went on immediately to become a pastor in Fort Worth, Texas. He was a keeper of secrets par excellence and without a blush. He never told of his other life in New York City in the exclusive Lotus Club where he was associated with 
Membership Chairman and Notable World Zionist Samuel Untermeyer. Schofield was to hide his past in order to become a self-taught pastor in Fort Worth, Texas, and he did it very well. It was not until 1988, 59 years after Schofield's death, that researcher Joseph Canfield was able to piece enough history together from official records and from the family's records to produce the first factual and critical biography of this very important figure in a book called The Incredible Schofield and His Book. It is almost certain that those in Schofield's church congregation never knew of his sordid history, nor probably did his young second wife. Schofield was not only a master keeper of big secrets, but a clever deceiver. According to Canfield, Schofield appeared to have invented a sin he never had, alcoholism, to make his conversion of Christianity believable. He seemed to have successfully hidden all his real sins and even crimes behind this fantasy one. How very clever. Schofield, for the rest of his life, attributed his cure to alcoholism to Jesus, but he never confessed nor made recompense to those he cheated, nor did he leak a word of his past to anyone. Schofield was the equivalent of a bank robber who got off by confessing to double parking in front of the bank. He was a perfect frontman for World Zionist movement to gain a foothold in controlling the devout Christian community in the USA at the turn of the 20th century. That community was largely sympathetic to the Arab people at that time, and they viewed Islam as a mission field, and they viewed Palestine as Arab property. This man is Theodore Herzl. The name of his famous book, written in 1895, is Judenstadt, or the Jewish state in English. Herzl is often said to be the founder of the Zionist movement. He was educated, moderate, and well-respected, and he dreamed of a homeland for the Jewish people. Herzl was a Jewish-Austrian writer who wrote for a prominent European newspaper. He was a respected man, and he died at an early age, only seven years after founding the Zionist movement. And by the way, he died heartbroken, feeling that he'd failed because he was completely rejected by the people in the Zionist movement who came along behind him, and who were much more radically Zionist than he was. Theodore Herzl was at first not committed to the idea of a Palestinian state. He wanted a Jewish state, even though he was not totally sure that he would want to be there. And he wanted it anywhere that he could get it. He was willing to take Uganda, or he was willing to take some other place where space was available and where Jewish people could go to start their own religious state. Now, in 1897, the first Zionist conference took place in Bern, Switzerland. And at this conference, Herzl was the leader. But five years later, Herzl was no longer a factor in the Zionist movement, and the Zionist movement was absolutely committed toward the idea of a state in no other place except Israel. There is very strong reason to believe that there was a connection between the Zionist movement and Cyrus Schofield. The reason for this is that Cyrus Schofield wrote a blueprint for the Zionist movement to take over the land of the state of Israel. He wrote it into a Bible that became so powerful that it was used in every seminary in America, and it became one of, if not the most famous, Bible in America. The reason it was so famous was that it was used more in the evangelical, the new evangelical seminaries, than any other Bible, perhaps, in history, and still is used today extensively in the evangelical seminaries, such as the Baptist theological seminaries. The Schofield Reference Bible was copyrighted in 1909. It is an Old Testament and a New Testament, but with most of the notes in the original text being to the Old Testament. Later, many notes were added to the New Testament as the text was re-edited. 
The cover shows that the editor was Cyrus C.I. Schofield, Schofield, and there were seven other men on the editorial board. One of these was Reverend James M. Gray, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute, one of the most influential Bible organizations in evangelical circles of the day. There were also two other seminary leaders on the editorial board. These people lent their name to the Schofield Bible and were predominantly in seminaries and held important Bible teaching positions. Now, what is the Schofield Reference Bible? We're looking at some verses that are standard verses that you'll find in any King James version of the Bible, and they're about the same in almost any Bible that you'd read. This is Genesis 12:3. Let me just read it in paraphrase. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get you out of this country and from your father's house and into the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be blessed, and I will bless them who bless you and curse him that curses you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is Genesis 12:3, and it's the earliest verse of the covenant that God made to Abraham. And of course, Christians believe that this has really happened, that God really made this covenant. And the reason we believe it, the reason we Christians believe this, is much different than the reason that, that Jews believe it. We believe it because it says that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And we believe that that blessing meant that there would be a Messiah and his name would be Jesus Christ and in him would be the blessing for all of us that we would carry forward. If it were not for this, we'd have no reason to even recall who Abraham is or what Abraham did. For his importance to Christians is only found in the fact that he is in the lineage of the man called Joseph who was the stepfather of the man called Jesus. Now I want you to take a look at this footnote, and before you read the raised part of it, I want you to notice that the bottom part of the page is all footnotes, and the top part of the page is the text itself, and even that is carved up a little bit because there's a column down the middle, and there are even italized insertions in between the verses. We'll see this a little bit later. What I want to point out to you that here in this 1967 version of the Schofield Bible, and I just a minute ago we looked at the original 1909 version, but in this 1967 version of the Schofield Study Bible, the footnotes have grown to where they vastly outnumber the text in these very important pages. Let's look at the footnote that's found in the Schofield Study Bible in 1967. It says, God made an unconditional promise of blessing through Abram's seed to the nation of Israel to inherit a specific territory forever. Let's read that again. God made an unconditional promise of blessing through Abram's seed to the nation of Israel to inherit a specific territory forever. Genesis 12.3. Now the passage basically does not say that God is giving any piece of land to anybody forever. Furthermore, it doesn't say anything about Israel. And in fact, if we consider history for a moment, we know that Abraham had no children when this happened, and he didn't have children for quite a while. And when he did, the second generation after him, his grandson, became named Israel. So there was no person named Israel. There was no state, no nation named Israel. There was absolutely nobody that was connected with Israel at this time since the man Israel did not even exist when this statement was made, how is it that Schofield, or I should say Oxford University Press, had the nerve to say that God was promising land to the state of Israel forever? 
to the nation of Israel forever. Obviously, somebody wrote this who had an interest in the nation of Israel, and it didn't have anything to do with Jesus coming to the earth, did it? It should be noted at this point that Cyrus Schofield died shortly after he wrote this book. By 1921, he was dead. But after 1921, the Oxford University Press became the owner of his Bible, and they went right on making changes in it as though Schofield was still there, still leaving Schofield listed on the cover as being the editor of the book. But Schofield is gone, and so Oxford Press went ahead and wrote these changes in, which basically are the kind of changes that Theodore Herzl or his successors would have wished that somebody would Let's write go on into with the some Christian more of the Schofield study notes to this Genesis 12.3. As I told you, there's a lot of notes, so we'll read further. Read the next one. Uh, note number three says, There is a promise of blessing upon the individuals and nations who bless Abram's descendants and a curse laid upon those who persecute the Jews. Now we have Oxford University Press entering the Jews into footnotes to something that was written long before there was a word called the Jew, which did not even exist in the days of Abram. In fact, Jew is taken from the word Judah, or Judean, and Judean is taken from the word Judah, and Judah was one of the twelve grandsons of Abram. So Judah didn't exist either, and the word Jew didn't exist, and so how is it that Oxford University Press is putting words in the mouths of the readers of this Bible to think that, that there is a promise of blessing made to the Jew? Then uh, we read further, it's still footnote three. God's promise to Abram and his seed certainly did not terminate at Sinai with the giving of the law. The New Testament and Old Testament are full of post-Sinaitic promises concerning Israel and the land, which is to be Israel's everlasting possession. So here in 1967, they've changed the Oxford's study Bible to say that the land is to be the property of the state of Israel forever. But there was no state of Israel in 1909 when Cyrus Schofield wrote the original Bible, and in his original notes there is no mention whatsoever of the state of Israel. All of this is hatched up and added on conveniently into the later editions of the Bible after the Oxford Press took over. Let's read further. We're still reading footnotes to Genesis 12.3. Promise to the Gentiles. I will bless them that bless thee. Those who honor Abram will be blessed and curse them that curse thee. This was a warning literally fulfilled in the history of Israel's persecution. Here we're talking about the state of Israel's persecution. It is invariably fair and ill with the people who have persecuted the Jew, persecuted the Jew, and well with those who have protected him. And here is the punchline. For a nation to commit the sin of anti-Semitism brings inevitable judgment. Future will still more remarkably prove this principle. I, give a, I must repeat that. If a nation commits the sin of anti-Semitism, it will be subject to inevitable judgment. So says the footnotes to the Oxford University Press Bible. Isn't that convenient? That means that as a country, if the nation of America does not properly honor the nation of Israel, that our whole country is to be considered in sin, and that we are considered to be in line for judgment from God, or not being properly friendly to the nation of Israel. This is what has been written over and over again into the footnotes of the Oxford University Press Bible. And of course, remember, there was no Jew in the time that Abram was taught. There was no Israel at the time that Schofield wrote the original notes to this Bible. And Schofield would not have even understood what they were talking about if someone would have told him that there was going to be a Zionist state of Israel in 1948 and that he was writing a Bible that had to do with that. The people that did have something to do with this, of course, were a world Zionist movement. Samuel Untermeyer was the leader of this movement. And Samuel Untermeyer, of course, was part of the movement that did many things in the administration of Woodrow Wilson, had a very powerful influence on getting the United States into World War I on the side of the British. 
against the Germans. He had a very powerful effect upon getting Judge Brandeis appointed to the Supreme Court. And we're not going to go into that in the little bit of time we have here. But it's very important to know that this leading Zionist, Mr. Samuel Untermeyer, the most prominent Zionist in New York, an attorney, knew Cyrus Schofield. Cyrus Schofield knew him. That Cyrus Schofield was ushered into a very private club that Samuel Untermeyer was a membership chairman of, and that Mr. Schofield kept this secret through his entire life, and it was not found out until after his death that he was a member of Samuel Untermeyer's club. We think there's probably reason to believe that Samuel Untermeyer and those who put up the money for the powerful Zionist movement in America wanted the American Christian faith to accept the state of Israel as a reality in the world, and that they were planning for this long before Cyrus Schofield even dreamed that there could possibly be a state of Israel, which he never dreamed it. I was recently asked by some people at a conference if I thought that Cyrus Schofield was a Zionist, and my answer was, I don't think so. I think he was simply an opportunist, an incredibly ambitious man who was willing to do anything that was needed in order to get ahead, and a man who could keep a secret, and a man who could lie with a straight face anytime, any place, and not be the least bit bothered by it. That was the kind of man that Cyrus Schofield was. It was very unlikely that he ever knew that he was laying the groundwork for a Zionist state and that millions of people would come to their death because of what's happening, because of his words in the Middle East. I want to just take one minute to go back into the Old Testament and some words of Schofield himself to show you how clearly it is that Schofield was influenced and that he actually had someone doing the ghostwriting for him and putting down things on those yellow pads that Schofield himself could probably have never dreamed of. We're looking here at the notes to the Schofield Reference Bible, the original one written in 1909. This is Deuteronomy 30 verses 3 through 5. And I want to read to you the note that is written about this verse. Now, first let me tell you what the verse is really all about. This section of Deuteronomy talks about a covenant, and it talks about the, the ancient Israelites being shown the land that God had promised to them. And and this is covered in, in some detail in Deuteronomy 30. But Cyrus Schofield placed this note, or that someone placed this note in the 1909 Schofield Bible, and I think it shows that someone was already writing about Palestine 30 years before there was a state of Palestine, 30 years, actually 40 years before there was a state of Palestine, and before the word would have even meant anything to Schofield. Here's what the note said. The Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel entered the land of promise. It is important to see that the nation was never as of yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. So what this footnote is telling us is that when the people of Abraham were shown the land and went in and occupied the land, this footnote by Schofield is saying they really never got the land, that that promise is still outstanding there. The nation of Israel never did receive the land. It's very unusual to talk about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament because, of course, Israel was a man and those who followed him were simply a tribe. And boundaries were not something they really did talk about. But you can see that someone here in 1909 already knew there was going to be a Palestine, that there was going to be land taken in Palestine, that it was going to be occupied, and that there was going to be an excuse needed for taking and using that land. And whoever knew that wrote this footnote to the book of Deuteronomy that referred to a covenant that's not even mentioned. The word Palestine is not even mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. Nowhere is it mentioned in the Old Testament. The book Palestine is not even mentioned. The word Philistine is mentioned some places, but Schofield actually used the modern word 
Palestine in this note, and it clearly to me shows that someone else was ghostwriting his notes and was preparing for a state of Israel in 1909 when the state of Israel was not even created until 1948, 39 years later. Now, I've said that there was a powerful influence carried out to market the Schofield Study Bible. Mr. Schofield commented in his biography how amazed he was at his success, how incredibly surprised he was at how much money he got in royalties on his Bible. Of course, that money paid to him by Oxford University Press, who we now know owned the Bible from the very get-go. And the reason we know that is when Schofield died, Oxford Press went right ahead editing the Bible and appointing new people to its editorial staff and making the changes they wanted to make in their own name. And Schofield's family had nothing to do with it, even though one of his friend's grandson is on the editorial board today. And there's an effort made to keep the names consistent. Nevertheless, it appears that there was very little control. Now here in the 1967 edition of the Bible you see that Cyrus I. Schofield is still listed as the editor of the Bible. And that doesn't show in this page which is truncated. We have to look at one of the other pages to see that because this has been cut off. But what we intend to show in this slide is that there are four theologians who are heads of seminary on this editorial committee of the new edition in 1967. Those include John F. Walvoord, head of the powerful Dallas Theological Seminary, the most prominent theological seminary in evangelical circles today. And Walvoord was the president of that, and we believe he promoted the Schofield Study Bible to everyone who attended that seminary from that day forward. And here is the Dallas Theological Seminary. It was founded in 1924, and a good part of its success is probably owed to the fact that it has been closely allied with the Schofield people ever since. Today, it's probably the most prominent uh, seminary in evangelical circles, and many of the most prominent evangelicals uh, attended there, including Hal Lindsey, author of The Late Great Planet Earth, and someone who is truly committed to the idea of Armageddon. It's necessary for us to talk in practical terms about what can be done about this dilemma. What we have is a problem, as we started off discussing, where de Tocqueville stated that America's greatness lay in her churches, in the righteousness of those who attended them, and the ideas that were brought forth by the churches of the 19th century. And I'm not saying that the churches were perfect in the 19th century. There was a very great weakening toward the turn of the 20th century, as the Civil War was a very destructive and war is always destructive to order and religion and morality, and the Civil War was one of the great destroyers of morality. The evangelical church probably had noble enough beginning. People that started these Southern Baptist Convention, other churches, probably had ideas about reforming the tottering and drifting mainline churches of the late 19th century, the turn of the century. But nevertheless, the movement was very quickly captured, and as Dr. F. Furman Curley, a professor of Bible and director of Graduate studies at Abilene Christian University said in 1985 in his remarkable book, The Middle East Crisis in Biblical Perspective, Christians must pray for peace in the Middle East. Premillennialists, and this means followers of Schofield, must pray and work for World War III, or as we have put that, the war against Islam, so Armageddon will come. They cannot pray for peace because they want an Armageddon, and that Armageddon has to take place in Israel, and Israel is the place where the Palestinians and the Palestinian conflict takes place, and it is the center 
of the war issue in the Middle East. We have today somewhere between 40 and 100 million evangelicals in America. We have a president who calls himself an evangelical, a born-again Christian. For my own history, I am a former Southern Baptist deacon, and I'm very, very familiar with what goes on in evangelical churches. And I followed that ideas, those ideas myself, until I realized that the evangelical church was supporting war. It was supporting any war in the Middle East. The evangelical church wasn't necessarily for war in Korea. It wasn't necessarily for war in Vietnam. There was, there was a tendency to be very supportive of the business administrations, but it was absolutely in support of the first Gulf War, the upcoming war in Sudan, and other wars that have taken other, we shouldn't call them wars, other police occupations and uh, devastations that have taken place in other countries. And so we need to examine what can be done to change this. And in our organization, we hold these truths. We started a project called Project Straight Gate. Now we'll talk about what can be done about this problem. Judaized Christians enable war is the topic of one of our articles. We could have said Christian Zionists enable war as well, a more popular word at the present moment. We're talking about the very churches where John Hagee, Rod Parsley, John MacArthur, and thousands of prominent evangelicals teach. This is a picture of Project Straight Gate Vigil being held in front of John MacArthur's Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Note the sign, Blessed are the Peacemakers. For some strange reason, this sign incenses some evangelical Christians, even though it is a direct quote from Jesus. John MacArthur has appeared on the Larry King Live show a number of times and has been invited to the White House. He has blessed the Gulf War and he stands behind the police action in Palestine. Here is another vigil being conducted at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. It's pastored by the well-known Chuck Smith. Calvary Chapel has spawned the growth of over 25 other Calvary chapels around California and the West. Here is a picture of another vigil, which we have come to call Interventions, at the Calvary Chapel in Tempe, Arizona. At this Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, the church members were so agitated by the presence of Project Straight Gates vigil that they hoisted the Israeli flag, as you see. These two ladies are standing in front of the Southern Baptist Convention, a very large convention of pastors who gathered in Phoenix, Arizona in, in 2002, just before the start of the bombing of Iraq. They were there holding pictures of Palestinian children and Palestinian families who've been bulldozed, and, and they were there to talk to the pastors. Project Straight Gate has conducted something like 50 of these vigils at mainline churches, evangelical churches, and major conventions of churches all over the country. This vigil is being held in front of the largest Baptist church in Bakersfield, California. The pastor of this church came out and talked to us twice. You see the signs, Choose Life, Not War, Project Straight Gate with a phone number, No More Wars for Israel, it has a cross with Palestine on the crossbar, uh, Crucifixion of Palestine. And at this church, we had a very good reception, and we had a number of people came out and talked to us, and a number of them tried very hard to change what we believe, too. Here we have a counter-demonstration. These people came out. Evangelicals react to vigil at their church. These people were in the church. They went inside, made their own signs, came out on the street, and started picketing. It was just before the election. They misunderstood our intentions. They thought we were campaigning for John Kerry. We don't campaign for presidential candidates. 
didn't, certainly didn't campaign for John Kerry, and they're carrying George Bush Cheney signs that they have glued onto their hastily made signs, and these signs read, don't listen to these radicals, and we support our president, and things like that, and they came out and stood on the curbs, held a counter-demonstration to our demonstration. Our purpose, of course, is to raise the question of what would Jesus say about bombing the children of, of Iraq? What would Jesus say about bombing the children of Palestine? What would Jesus say about destroying Jabber's school in Gaza, where his children go. Now what is this all about, ladies and gentlemen? I'm showing you a picture of the entrance, the gate, that you have to go through in order to get into the Gaza Strip. This is called Eris Gate. This is looking back after one is safely inside the Gaza Strip, a prison with walls all around it and fences, a place that you cannot leave, and a place where nothing can get in unless the state of Israel decides they want to let it in. The starvation occurs at their will inside these fences, and there's no escaping the Gaza Strip. That gate you see in front of you is empty. There's no one coming in. If you look back, there's not a single person in view, and the soldiers are hidden behind the barricades back there, the Israeli soldiers. This is a wide corridor. It's about 100 yards wide. And the fences are very tall, and they have razor wire on top of them. There's no getting in, and there's no getting out. This is where America is heading. We're heading for a gulag, in which those who do not cooperate will find that there's no getting in, and there's no getting out. It may be a literal gulag, it may be an intellectual gulag, but it's time that we act, and it's necessary that we take our part right now to defend the people around the world who are being bombed and killed. In order to do this, we need to take action, and our idea of this is to go directly to America's churches. The 2008 election has again demonstrated the unity of the Christian Zionist voting bloc in a losing effort. Unfortunately, that unity of purpose is confused and is not centered around Jesus' words, but defers to the needs and desires of Israel. Therefore, Judeo-Christians have an endemic capacity to be misled, as we have explained, and is the central theme of this film. This error can be corrected if and when well-meaning members will listen. There is a strong evidence this is happening, and we must encourage it. The Christian Zionist right remains the largest and the most easily manipulated voting political faction in America, making up 26% of the normal voters. It was apparently the only bloc that supported McCain-Palin's losing cause. Overwhelmed by the war-shattered economy and the unpopularity of the Bush administration, we Americans have lost our influence to factions and lobbies who have attempted to control both candidates through their finances. If we are to recover our rights, we need the support of the Christian right, so we need to re-educate it. We might as well admit our God-given rights to self-government is gone until we reclaim 60 or 70 million Judeo-Christians to be followers of Christ. The Judeo-Christian right remains the most powerful faction. And it is not a coincidence, it is the only political faction driven directly by religious beliefs that war and the support of the State of Israel, therefore distrust of Israel's perceived enemies, is a necessity of prophecy and is therefore somehow, in some fuzzy way, instrumental to their own salvation. Christian Zionism, by whatever names, will remain hostile to every Islamic State and therefore open to manipulation in support of every war or act of occupation. This cannot change until church members again recognize that anti-Islam or anti-any race is contrary to the task of following Christ and produces inhumane results, such as in Gaza. The new Obama administration will be under huge pressure from those who financed it to make only a showing of downsizing the Iraq war. 
Neoconservatives such as the Project for the New American Century and the world banking interests will pressure for continued and even escalation of warring efforts, sanctions, and occupation of Islamic states. President-elect Obama has already opined that he favors staying in Afghanistan, and Iraq is likely to be stretched out. He will be encouraged to occupy Sudan and the southern Islamic states of the old Soviet Union for humanitarian reasons. Christian Zionists did not vote for Obama, but they will be pressured to maintain these wars, which they will be led to believe are good for Israel and anathema to Islam. Judeo-Christianity may be the only group in America to have taken seriously the rumor that Obama is a Muslim. Churches organize pre-election day prayer sessions, fearfully asking God to deliver America from Obama. Some referred to him as Antichrist. Deceased Jerry Falwell's Liberty University gave its 10,000 students election day off to work in the polls for McCain all over Virginia. World Zionism and its neocon think tanks have switched tactics of promoting fear of terrorism, as with day 9-11, to the new paradigm, fear of and distrust of all Muslims, including the neighbor and his children. Christian Zionists are most susceptible to this phobia. Tough guy, anti-Arab talk among Judeo-Christians has become acceptable, an epidemic on talk radio which appeals to Judeo-Christians. Comments like nuke them all, turn it to glass, or worse, are commonplace. Christian Zionist leaders and the neoconservative think tanks have fed Islamophobia on conservative talk radio and internet sites that cater to its listeners, that is to Christian Zionist listeners. Some radio celebrities could be arrested for their inflammatory words had hate crime legislation not been repeatedly rejected by Congress. Christian Zionist influence in support of war and Islamophobia will end only when sufficient layman members walk out of the Zionist churches in mass. This anti-scriptural false faith will collapse of its own air then. Americans can only then reclaim their heritage of a moral, Christian-influenced government. You have witnessed in this film a killing air raid in the Gaza Strip, photographed by this speaker. And you have heard Shireen tell us of her prayers that the next Israeli bomb will not hit her bedroom. The occupation and bombing of 1.5 million Gazans, like Shireen, would end overnight were it not for the enabling support of millions of well-intended and otherwise decent Americans who do not know what they support when they support Israel. Shireen's home the Gaza Strip is the best example we can find of the bitter and ungodly fruit of Christian Zionism. Let us take one last look at it, lest we forget. One last sentence you would like to say for American Christian people. We are human beings. We are not terrorists, as you hear always. We are normal persons who have normal dreams, who have normal things that you have. We are not afraid of we when the when we hear the, the the big the loud voice of the of the the F F sixteen the plan plan or helicopters we are we we don't we are not afraid of this we are afraid of the moment to, to lose our dreams please don't believe that we are training people our children in school that to use guns or something like this. We dedicate this film to Shireen from Gaza and many others, some Christian followers who I met there and who I came to love and to fear for. 
I cannot name them for their own safety's sake. They are in constant danger, if indeed they are still alive, not from a million Muslims around them, but from the deprivation and the assassination by Israelis with Americans' money and weapons. Shireen asked me, can we fix this? I could not tell her I could fix it, but I promised her I would not quit trying. We implore you to show this film to every mainline pastor, an influential group, both Christian, Muslim, and Jewish, if they'll listen. Traditional and Orthodox Christian churches do not believe that God ordained the state of Israel, so they will listen. They need to go further in understanding the roots of Christian Zionism so they can take their part in recovering America.